season two of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Adam was recorded on October 19th, 2023. Thanks, Gretchen, and hi, everyone. My name is Adam. I'm an adult child, and I am really glad to be here. And uh, I feel like I need to preface a few things before I jump into my story. First, I do want to thank the service team here. You guys are fantastic, and uh, it's just an amazing job that you do. Uh, also, I uh, want to acknowledge that uh, when I talk about my family, I'm referring to my family of origin as a child. I have a very different relationships, uh, particularly with my mother and my brother now, uh, thanks to recovery. And uh, and I realize that the story I tell is one that uh, was interpreted by a uh, scared child, uh, one that uh, was not getting their needs met. Uh, the other thing is... Um, I do use acronyms, and uh, just in case anybody doesn't know what acronyms are, uh, that is uh, to take a word and use the letters to make other words. And I'm not trying to belittle anyone. I just know when I got to recovery, I didn't know what the word acronym was. And uh, and then the other thing is that uh, I want to be really clear that I am not qualified or certified to diagnose myself or anybody else, but I don't let that stop me. I really do like to diagnose other people. I have a lot of practice in it. And uh, really, I like to work steps four through 10 on other people. I like to take a searching and fearful, immoral inventory of others. I like to admit to God, myself, and others the exact nature of their wrongs. I become entirely ready to remove their defects of character. And through control and manipulation, i.e. people pleasing or punishment, I try to remove their shortcomings. I make a mental resentment list of all the ways people have harmed me, and I become entirely ready for them to make amends. And I will demand direct amends from such people wherever possible, regardless of of doing so would injure them or others. The important thing is they owe me amends, damn it. And I will continue to take their inventory, and when they're wrong, I will promptly admit it. So I just want to put that out there. And so with that, uh, I'm glad to be here and uh, Looking forward to sharing my experience uh, of what it was like growing up in the disease of alcoholism slash dysfunctionalism, and then also my experience with recovery. And I'll do so by covering some of the lowlights of my childhood and uh, hopefully some of the highlights of recovery. And I'm going to do the best I can also to keep an eye on that clock, because as the saying goes, I did not have the happiest childhood, but I've tried to make up for it by having one of the longest childhoods. And uh, so I first qualified for ACA generations before I was born. Both my grandfathers had died of cirrhosis of the liver. I didn't know either one of them. And uh, my paternal grandmother, I didn't know her either. Uh, I just heard that she had some physical ailments and they could never find out exactly what that was. And uh, I think on her death certificate, they could have put failure to find Al-Anon in time. And with my grandmother, uh, that was the only one that I knew. And uh, she lived until she was 90. She started smoking non-filter camel cigarettes at the age of 12. 
And she started drinking at the age of 18. And she went every single day until she fell down, uh, broke her hip, and then she became dependent and no longer able to engage in her addictions. And uh, on her death certificate, they put uh, cause of death, failure to thrive. And so who am I to decide who needs to sober up, who needs to get off addictions, because they just might lose the will to live. And uh, she would, we lived in a, uh, ca a casino town. We lived in Reno, Nevada uh, for most of my childhood. And uh, I just remember that she would come and visit about a week every uh, once a year, maybe twice a year, and just always had a cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other. And she was a pretty miserable uh, person. Uh, when she died, uh, most of the family was just relieved more than anything else. And uh, so that was the only grandparent I knew. My earliest memory is the alcoholic father walking out the door. And I was a late three years old. And I just remember crying and crying and crying and crying. And he showed back up when I was 10 years old. I hadn't heard from him at all. And he showed up with a family that he married into. And uh, they looked a whole lot like ours. Our mom was out of town at that time. And uh, so the sitter called in myself. I had a, an older brother who's three and a half years older, a sister who's two and a half years older, and a uh, younger sister who's three and a half years older. So I'm pretty sure her and uh, my younger sister and me were the oops babies. But uh, as they called us in, I just remember my family or me and my siblings all sitting on the couch and he was sitting on a leather chair and they were all surrounding him. And I thought, uh, so that's our biological father and those are not his biological kids so he traded us in for them there must be really something wrong with us and i just didn't know any better at the time and uh so i guess uh starting with the acronyms uh, the the acronym for my dad would be a, a drunk ass derelict and it's fair to say i didn't have a dad i had a dud and, uh, you know, this is back in the 70s, so there was no email, there was never a phone call, uh, no emails, no computers, no anything like that. And uh, somehow he actually ended up on my amends list uh, when I got into recovery. And uh, we had about a 15-minute conversation. And two things I remember is one is he called me by my brother's name, and I said, uh, close 50-50, I'm the other one. And he's like, oh, yeah, I knew that. And then the other is, he said, in the future, I think it would be better if you just uh, sent me an email. I'm much more accessible that way. And it became very clear that if I wanted to start a relationship with him, it would be me chasing somebody who has always been available. And for the empowerment of that, as I let him know that uh, it was time for me to go. And uh, it just felt good not waiting around for him to say goodbye. But so for me, it felt uh, like I was taking a little bit of my power back. Uh, the other thing I did for that relationship is I changed my last name uh, voluntarily, and uh, I took my middle name as my last name, and then I took my son's first name as my middle name. So I did grow up with uh, my single parent mother. She's the one that grew up with that very critical alcoholic. Uh, one of the things is that abandonment, abandonment runs in my family. I am at least the fourth generation of growing up with a single parent mom. And typically, the father leaves somewhere around the age of three and four. The three words I would use to describe my mother, uh, she is a workaholic. She is a perfectionist. And the problems with perfectionists is they are experts on what's wrong and the amateurs on what's right. 
And also she had OCDs and one of them would be obsessive cleaning disorder. She declared war on dirt and I think she really liked the idea of having kids better than the experience. I think she would have liked uh, my older brother to be born with an appendage being a vacuum cleaner. Uh, she probably would have enjoyed my older sister having a dustpan for her left hand and a broom for her right arm. And I think she would have liked to, for me to have a left hand and a dish sponge and the right hand a uh, towel to dry them off. And uh, perhaps my younger sister to have a mop for an appendage. But uh, that wasn't the case. We were all just kind of, you know, quote unquote, normal kids physically anyways. And uh, so she would often get home late and she would come in and she would look around and she would find something that wasn't done right. And then that would be her other OCD as a obsessive criticism disorder is she would just start criticizing everything and then she would withdraw her energy and then she would remove herself from the environment. And uh, that was uh, pretty scary a lot of times as a kid because my older siblings started doing, they like to, they started drinking pretty early uh, by the time I was 10 and they like to mix their drinks, things like uh, vodka and acid. And, you know, a lot of fun times with that. Uh, I got to experience uh, hiding under cars for safety or phone booths and those kinds of things. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't know it at the time when I got into recovery, but I was sure they were all the perpetrators and I was the victim. And what I've learned in recovery is that we were all victims of being born and raised in the disease of alcoholism. And that includes my parents and grandparents as well. So I can have compassion, but, uh, you know, hurt people, hurt people and hurt people are easily hurt by people. So there was a whole lot of pain going on. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, the family system is a shame anxiety factory. Nobody leaves home without it. And the Malou that uh, I would uh, say the mental Malou is had the isms. And uh, I was just writing down what I thought would be the mental isms before this meeting. And that would be a cynicism, criticism, emotionalism, extremism, judgmentalism, narcissism, negativism, neuroticism, perfectionism, and pessimism. All of those would have applied to the environment. It was a, a very negative environment. And another way of describing my environment, I refer to it as living with the crabs. And that would be an acronym for criticism, rejection, abandonment, blaming, and scorn. And it hurts to get pinched. And uh, getting pinched, I feel like, left me some scars here and uh, let me put up the background there so uh, getting pinched uh, ended up leaving me with some scars and the acronym that i'd use for that would be shameful controlling anxious resentful and suppressed and i want to uh, discuss those just a little bit uh for me the scorn worked uh for me i became very shameful and I got several acronyms I used for that. The first would be sick human attacking myself endlessly. I didn't know that it was called a critical parent as I was growing up. All I knew is that I would generally have a conversation eh, throughout the day. And it usually would be, oh, Adam, you idiot. What the hell is wrong with you? I cannot believe that. It just was not. It was a nonstop talking machine. My mind was. And I would say the critical parent was driving the bus probably 90% of the time in my life. All of those isms that I had, I had absorbed those and I was judging, I judged everybody. 
another one of the shame acronyms would be something happens always my error. Uh, it was reflecting back to, I used to play two man beach volleyball and my partner of course was an alcoholic. And I remember he served the ball into the net and I turned around and I said, sorry. And he looked at me and he said, what the F is wrong with you, man? I served the ball into the net and you apologized to me. And I just was convinced it was something like, you know, it was my just presence on the court or maybe I breathed it into the net. But uh, I learned that early on in childhood, being towards the bottom of the food chain, that if I take responsibility for other people's mistakes, is that there was less chance that they would end up getting angry. Uh, also, I'd use a lot of humor to try to keep them uh, keep them happy so they're not crappy, make them smile so they're not vile, be real funny so they're not crummy, and uh, give them the chuckles so I don't get their knuckles. And uh, so that was a defense. Then uh, the third acronym that uh, I want to use for crabs is should have automatically mastered everything. So I don't recall ever being taught uh, how to do things in my uh, as a child. Uh, most of my meals were I made my own meals and I learned how to make mean bowls of cereal. And I did understand the importance of having variety in my diet. So usually I would have Fruit Loops for breakfast. I would have a Captain Crunch for lunch or after school and sugar pops uh, for dinner. Uh, but I did also know how to make a frozen pizza and also make a peanut butter and butter sandwich. And uh, so but, uh, the problem with growing up with a perfectionist is they don't really give you instructions, but they just expect you to know how to do those things. And uh, the last acronym that uh, I want to use for the shame is stay hidden, avoid meaningful experiences. The last thing I wanted to do was to get to know people because if they knew me, then they would dislike me as much as I disliked me. So I would be a chameleon. And if somebody asked me what my favorite color is, I would say, I don't know what your, or I would just say, what's your favorite color? And they told me, I would say, yeah, me too. And the problem is that when I'm caught up in seeking others' approval and I'm pretending to be somebody that I'm not, so I have all this anxiety coming in to get them to like me. And one of the worst things that could happen is they can actually like me because then the anxiety increases because approval is just in the moment. And then I've got to then be even better the next time and then continually gain their approval. And uh, so thank God for recovery that uh, I go after my approval, not other people's approval anymore. The controlling, uh, it came down to, um, well, what I found is that in a, in a home that doesn't have rules, boundaries, and limitations, it's not guided by the spiritual principles of the steps, traditions, and concepts of service, is the best predictor of people's behavior is their moods and emotions. And so for me, I want to control people's moods and emotions in order to control their behavior. And so that means that I'm hypervigilant on everything that they're doing. I'm always looking for looks on their face, tone of voice, uh, looking for stress responses. And the craziness about being controlling is in what I don't see, well, I would say the paradox of being controlling is I become controlled by whatever it is I try to control. So if I try to control somebody's drinking, that uh, maybe I say the right thing or do the right thing, they're going to stop drinking. 
And even if they're not drinking, the anxiety doesn't go away because then I've got to monitor all of the time. So it's a 24 seven hour process, but really I just wanted to control the external so I can feel safe on the internal. As far as anxious, uh, for me, uh, here's where I get to diagnose myself. I, I've seen the DSM. I, I know how to how that all works. I uh, just look at the check boxes. I check them off. And did it last longer than six months? Well, this has always been all my life. And I, it's clear to me I had social anxiety. I had speech anxiety. And also I had general anxiety. Uh, part of it is I did not, I could not tell what was a safe environment from what was a hostile environment. There was always one thing present that for me indicated that it was a hostile environment, and that was people. If there's people in the room, for me, it was hostile. When I first got to recovery, there was a corner that was against the wall, and there was a chair there. And it got to the point like everybody just kind of allowed me to have that chair, just save that chair for me. And I would be wall to this side, wall behind me. It took one step for me to turn around and go out the back door and I could either go down the back stairs or out the front stairs. I needed to have everything in front of me because I needed to monitor all of that. So it was never the more the merrier. It was always the more the scarier for me. Uh, when it came to resentments, I was a people pleaser with revenge fantasies. I would say yes when I want to say no. And then I would end up blaming those people because if they would just provide a safe enough environment, then I can say yes. And then uh, for the last one, which would be suppression, uh, for the last letter and scars would be suppression. And that to me was uh, my spirit was suppressed. Uh, and then also my feelings were suppressed. There was uh, one feeling I was allowed to have, and that was fine. And it took uh, getting into recovery when somebody told me, you know, fine is not actually a feeling. And I thought, really? I'm like, that's the only one I was allowed to have. And then they told me the uh, fine acronym, which is frantic, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. So uh, all of these uh, effects of the growing up in alcoholism uh, ended up playing out in my relationships as I got older as well. Oh, and I should say when it came to anxiety, uh, I have anxious attachment when it came to relationships and that makes relationships a lot of fun. So what happens is when I get into a relationship is I'm constantly monitoring my girlfriend's moods and emotions. And I think if I do one thing wrong or if she's stressed or if there's a disapproving tone of voice in my mind, I am sure I am going to get abandoned and she's never, she's going to end the relationship. And then what I end up doing is I beat them to the punch. It's the less painful to be the abandoner than the abandonee. And that usually is death to the relationship. My experience is, oh, my girlfriends would typically have about uh, three or four times that they were okay with that. And they would tell me it's like, I've never been with somebody that can be so intimate. And at the same time that you pulled your energy out like the flip of a light switch. And I am sure that you are never coming back. So what I get to see is that my character offenses or what I call my character defenses, their character offenses to other people. And those things that I'm so afraid about and I, I, I'm so aware of what other people do, I'm actually doing it. I'm the one that then is walking around carrying the crowds, the criticism, rejection, abandonment, blaming, and scorn. I'm the one that's doing those things. Although I never had a, uh, I was never looking at myself. I always had justification for why it is I was doing that.
So the uh, disease relationship acronym would be a really exciting love affair, turns into ongoing nightmare, shit happening is painful. So it's always fun in the beginning. Uh, they actually took blood from people that are in the honeymoon stage of a relationship, and they tried to match it up with other people, and they found one type of person that had the same chemical makeup, and that is people that have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and that's what it's like in the beginning of a relationship. I fall in love. It takes me about two seconds to fall in love, and it takes me you know, two years to fall out. But uh, so what I and what I uh, learned was that that when I get intimate with somebody and I, I go to bed with somebody on her side of the bed is her childhood and all of her past relationships and the trauma that she has. And on my side of the bed is my childhood, all the trauma I carry and all the my past relationships. So a sponsor always tells me is friends before lovers, if lovers, and that once I go to bed with somebody, there's no going back. And the other part of that is I was always attracted to somebody that had red flags. My sponsor tells me like, you know, Adam, those are called trauma bonds and uh, you don't want a second date. And I would say, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm like, the whole time we were there, the theme from the love boat was playing. And he's like, that wasn't the theme from the love boat. That is the theme from the Titanic. Don't board that ship. And of course, she probably has a sponsor as well saying the same thing about me. But uh, so what ended up getting me into uh, recovery was I got into a relationship with an alcoholic uh, slash addict uh, after she started drinking. She started doing drugs very similar to my siblings. And I didn't even like her really as a person, but I didn't know how to say no. Uh, where Claudia Black in the Big Red Book credits her with saying, don't talk, don't feel, don't trust. I also include don't have wants and needs that put a single parent into uh, overwhelm and don't set boundaries. And so after a while, uh, she was a friend of my sister and she said, you know, you're, I've made myself so available to you. You're not going to ask me out. So we're going out this weekend. And the best I could do was postpone it. And then uh, she said, well, you better not cancel me on the next weekend or cancel the date on me the next weekend. And I didn't. And, uh, one of the worst things that happened is I my humor came out and uh, we were walking along the river. A car drives by and uh, four guys were in their convertible and they started whistling and and hooting and hollering. And I just looked at her and I said, you know, I'm sorry if you, you go out with me, you just got to get used to it. It happens to me all the time. And uh, and I probably shouldn't have said that uh, because it was uh, the most painful two years of my life as she was doing uh, five-day runners, and her body basically was just wilting. Uh, she went from a healthy 135 to under, uh, to under a 100 pounds as she was taking drugs that would speed up her central nervous system, and she just wasn't eating. Uh, she was losing her sight. And I remember towards the end, she uh, literally had a tooth fall out as she was talking to me. And I'm talk about shame, and I'm thinking, oh, what the heck am I doing in a relationship with a drug addict like this? But at my codependency just wouldn't let me out. So somebody called me up and said that uh, they saw her downtown in front of a casino and that she looked like she was dead. And uh, I, rather than going on another rescue mission, I just called up her sponsor, who actually happened to be my younger sister's sponsor too. And she said, uh, um, I let her know what happened. And she said, 
are you busy? And I said, uh, no. And she said, do you want to meet me down at a coffee shop? And I said, sure. And uh, she had just gone through a breakup as well. And it was kind of misery loves company. And I woke up the next morning and I just remember seeing her sponsor's face as she was smiling and we were laughing and joking around. And I knew what my meaning in life was at that point. And that was to take all my energy off of the alcoholic addict that I'd ended the relationship with and then to put them on her sponsor. And later on that day, she called me and she said, you know, hey, I'm going to this meeting. It's called Al-Anon. And do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to go to Al-Anon. Heck yeah. And all I know is I just wanted to be around her. And so I walked into Al-Anon and the first meeting was on forgiveness. And I remember hearing things like uh, holding resentments is Oh, like swallowing poison and hoping another person would die. And that if hold uh, and also having resentments is all of the places that I see myself as a victim and that I don't forgive for others. I forgive for myself. And I just heard enough there where I thought, okay, I'm going to come back. And uh, I started coming back to the Al-Anon meetings. And there was Monday through Friday, it was a, uh, it's called the Triangle Club. And Monday through Friday, they had meetings uh, from 12 to 1, and then also from 7 to 8. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, they had meetings at 5.30 to 6.30. On Saturdays, they had three meetings. On Sundays, they, they had three meetings. And early on, uh, one of the things I did is I accidentally showed up to the meeting on time. And they read something called The Problem. So this was, um, actually, it was on October 18th, 2003. So yesterday was my 20th anniversary in recovery. And when they read it, I was just like, holy cow, they talked about a sick need for abandonment and criticism is perceived as a threat. And I just remember thinking like, this is the best character description of me. And I didn't give anybody any interviews. I felt so exposed and so vulnerable. And I didn't go like, oh, these are other people that grew up in alcoholism like me. I had no idea I grew up in alcoholism and dysfunction because my mom was a workaholic. She was not a fall down drunk. And I didn't know my family's history. And I didn't even know alcoholism was a disease. It was just called normal. That's what everybody did. And as I was attending these meetings, they also had released their adult child daily reader called Hope for Today. And there was uh, these repeat offenders that would come to the meetings like myself. And these were adult children of alcoholics. And they would and they had about 20, uh, anywhere between like 10 to 20 years in recovery. And they had done the inner child work. And they would share about what it was like growing up in the disease of alcoholism. And then they would talk recovery and they would refer to things like getting a sponsor, start working the steps and traditions and concepts of service, go to meetings, be of service, read conference approved literature, do outreach. And I would just hear those messages again and again and again. And uh, so most of those meetings had an adult child focus to it. Uh, the Tuesday and Thursday meetings, those were more along the lines of straight ACA. Uh, that was before the Big Red Book was published. It was before the Yellow Workbook, which is chapter seven in the Big Red Book was published. Uh, they pretty much just had the identity papers, the laundry list, uh, the promises, 
and then the problem. Uh, there was a, a step workbook that we used, and uh, this isn't conference approved literature, but I just looked and I'm like, oh yeah, I still got this in my bookshelf. And it is the, the 12 steps for adult children. So we would go through that. And uh, in those first two years, I had a love-hate relationship with recovery. So I became addicted. I can get addicted to pretty much anything. And more is always better, whatever it is. When it comes to food, more is better. When it comes to exercise, more is better. When it comes to drinking, more was better. Uh, I never did go to AA. Uh, I found that uh, by being in Al-Anon uh, ACA, that seemed to work on a lot of my addictions. I still am working on the exercise addiction. And I'm getting to the point where I'm so old, like my body needs a break, but my mind says, no, I can just work my way through this. But uh, as I would get addicted to these meetings, if I missed a meeting where I've heard that addictions are obsession of the mind and a compulsion of the body, my mind would obsess. It would be like, oh my gosh, I wonder if what they talked about was today's reader and the, the adult child daily's reader. And I wonder if it was on boundaries or maybe it was on people pleasing or maybe it was on this. And I would literally be shaking if I missed a meeting. And so I would go to these meetings and I would have all of this anxiety because my anxiety disorders did not go away. I did not shed all of my character defects when I walked through the rooms of a recovery. I brought all of those in with me. So I would have this incredible anxiety right before I would share. And it might be going around the room and it was like getting closer, closer to the next person, the next person. And my anxiety would just pick up. Or the worst were popcorn meetings. And that's when somebody would share and call on somebody else. And I'm like, no, I wonder, I don't have five minutes worth of material remembered. It's like, what if I, what if I share before I'm ready? And then people don't think I'm really spiritual or anything like that. So I was bringing in all my approval issues and I would end up sharing whatever I was sharing and I would leave the meeting and the critical parent would come for a visit for about an hour. And it would sound like this, Adam, you effing idiot. I cannot believe that you shared all that. What the hell is wrong with you? And all of the millions and millions, billions and billions of recovery shares, that was the worst, the worst ever. And this went on, I am never coming back. And then the clock would tick and it would get close to that meeting. And then here comes that, that, that excitement of going like, but I've never found a place like this. And I would walk through the door and I was so prepared for people. Every time I'd walk through the door to go, oh my God, I cannot believe you came back after what you shared the last time I was at a meeting. So my sponsor said, you know, that's a pretty big ego you have. And I'm like, what are you talking about a big ego? And he said, on the one hand, you think you are the worst, like the biggest turd on the world, but yet you think you're a really important turd because all anybody ever does is think about you and talk about you. And I was convinced that was the case. And he would often say to me, you know, I used to obsess about what people thought about me until I realized just how little people do. And but this went on for like two years till I really started plugging in the approval issues, working through the steps. And what I found is that I really did not know what my values were. My values, the only ones that I can identify was to keep other people from having the crabs, keep them from being critical, rejecting, abandoning, blaming, and scornful. Is that that was my whole focus. I And so those steps to get a sponsor and the acronym for sponsorship for me was same person offering newcomer 
solutions on recovery, sanity happens implementing principles. So I needed adult supervision when I got there, and I needed somebody that was grounded in these spiritual principles to kind of gently kind of push me to let me know that he would often say things like he would give me five minutes to say the ain't it awfuls. And then after that, he would do something really or say something really spiritual, like, you know, hey, how about getting off the cross? We can use the wood. Uh, or he would do something really spiritual, like he would start to yawn and then he would say, oh, you know, I could use a nap right now. Do me a favor. Wake me up when you get to your part. So he would continually remind me that recovery is about putting down the magnifying glass in other people's lives and picking up the mirror in my own. And so for me, after getting that sponsor and working the steps, which, you know, a couple acronyms for that would be solutions to every problem spiritually or solutions to everyday problems sanely, is that my problems weren't my problems. It was my solutions that were my problems. And he also told me that if I was, I didn't have a choice. I was a victim of the disease, the disease. But once I found recovery and also I found the steps is that victimhood is a choice. And I become a victim when I work the steps on other people and I start taking their inventory. When I work the steps on other people, they don't look so good. It's as if they bathe in miracle growth for character defects. But when I work the steps on me, other people look a whole a lot better. And so those first three are about stop taking other people's inventory. And maybe I used to use uh, MMOB, which would be mind my own business. Part of the uh, of my the reason why I found recovery is rather than accepting the people I cannot change is I spend most of my energy trying to change the people I do not accept. And I have the cowardice in changing the one I can, and I lack the wisdom in knowing that one is me. So I just get the serenity prayer all bass backwards. And those first three steps for me are directly aligned with that first line in the serenity prayer. It's about accepting the people that I cannot change. My experience has been that when people drink, do drugs, talk hurtfully towards me, engage in behavior that leads me to feel hurt or uncomfortable, they've never come up to me and say, Adam, you know, I'm thinking about saying something or doing something that I think might hurt you. And I want you to vote. And in fact, I'm going to give you the deciding vote. No one ever lets me vote. They just say what they say and they do what they do. So for me, it's about accepting that, but so that I can put down that and I can start to look at myself. So steps four and five for me are all about my past and where I love ACA and particularly when they got the big red book and, uh, and then the yellow workbook that, uh, that accompanied it was that uh, to be able to go back to my family of origin and see how when I packed my bags and left the family of origin, I packed up all my patterns with me. And so with four and five, it's like what I don't find in step four and what I don't acknowledge in step five, it means I get to keep those patterns. And that means I will continue to deny, justify, rationalize, explain, and blame others for my behavior. But those ones that I do, find and I do acknowledge, that means that I'm ready then to plug them into step six and seven. And that becomes the bridge from my past into my future, which are in steps eight and nine. And what I find with step uh, six is that it let me know that I could not remove my character defects either. 
The way I tried to remove my character defects is the way I like to try to remove other people's character defects is I like to give them their fifth step and tell them everything that's wrong with them. I think I have incredibly power in my words. And when it comes to other people's inventory, one word is too many, a hundred thousand is not enough. And if they would just listen to me, I know best for them, even though I don't know how to manage my own life. But that's the way I also tried to remove my character defects is I tried to shame them out of me and I could not do that. Where step seven was important was um, where those rules of the alcoholic household, don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, don't have what's and needs and don't set boundaries, is I needed to reverse that and I needed to start to talk to share what it was like growing up in alcoholism. I needed to start to feel. Uh, I was an emotional taxidermist stuffing them all in, which means I was full of it. I was full, this pool of pain, which made me a reactor. It did not take much pressure for me to just have this reaction. I used to call them atom bombs. If I smiled and somebody didn't smile back, it was like, if I said hi and they didn't say hi, hi back, I, this it was a good day if an atom bomb didn't occur more than 20 times during the day. So my sponsor told me that feelings are the curse of the disease, but they get to be the reward of recovery because they will guide me. I thought when I got to recovery that it was going to be 12 steps long was the path. But what I find it's 12 steps wide. The path never ends, at least until probably the day I die. And who knows what goes on from there? I just don't go into those directions. But I know that I need this path and my feelings will let me know when I've stepped off the path of recovery. And they'll also provide me with the motivation to get back on it. And so he told me those feelings didn't taste good when I swallowed them and they are not going to taste good when they are coming out. But what I find is that if I don't process those feelings and learn how to feel them is that they grow fangs and claws and they fight their way out at the most inappropriate times. I thought my parents should have probably named me Victor Timothy when I was younger. That way, for short, I could have gone by Vic Tim, but they named me Adam. And I think that was appropriate because I was a dam. I was a dam full of alcoholism. I was a dam full of dysfunctionalism. And I was a dam full of these painful emotions that I had stuffed. And through this, and I would say, I would love to say, well, you know, I got emotionally sober really quick. It really was emotional slow variety. And it's been by being committed to working a recovery program over all of these years that I would say that I'm uh, as emotionally mature as I have ever been. And uh, I, and also the important thing was I needed to have a sponsor that would help me to provide a, or that would provide a safe environment and would help me to, to teach me how to process my emotions. And I like to use an acronym, which is RULER now uh, for my processing emotions. And that is, I had to start to become uh, able to recognize my emotions. And then also I needed to start to learn how to understand the context in which they occur. So if I'm attracted to a female and I want her attention or I want her to like me, as I st would start to feel really anxious and I would start to feel not good enough and I would start to feel uh, unworthy and that she's not going to have time for me. And I start to understand that I was like, oh, that's how I felt with my childhood mother. And then I needed to start to label those that that's not love. That is the disease, me confusing the disease of alcoholism with love. And so after the labeling, I needed to learn how to express them. Expressing them in childhood was I hate you, F you, screw you. But expressing them now is 
I have something that I would really like to share. Is this a good time? Will you listen? Well, when you said that you would call and you didn't, I felt a little bit hurt. Uh, it triggered some abandonment stuff as a child. And and would you do me a favor that if you say that you're going to call, would you be willing to do that in the future? What I find is when I express them maturely, people are open to it. They, I find that uh, my girlfriend is completely open to listening to me process my emotions if I'm taking responsibility for them. And then the last one is to be able to regulate them. There's sometimes where it's just not appropriate for me to express them in that moment. But to be able to, uh, the goal at that point is to not engage in behavior that's going to need, uh, that I'm going to need to make amends for them the next day. Uh, afterwards, uh, call my sponsor, call a recovery friend, get to a meeting, share at a meeting, uh, do that to where it's going to take those uh, emotions from, you know, a three or four back down again. So in steps eight and nine, the reason that I work the steps is I make amends to others so that I can uh, set boundaries on me. And the boundaries are who's that person that I want to be. And I have a um, I have a formula that I use when I make amends to others. And I see I'm winding down here, so I'll start to wind this down. Is a lot of times in recovery books, it tells me to go through my life and to write down all the people that I've harmed. And I think, why do I do, why would I want to do that? Everything in recovery is about putting the focus on myself, not on other people. I actually made amends to somebody one time and they said, are you kidding me? That was the nicest thing you could have done for me. I think it was my higher power working through you to show me I don't want to be around somebody that engages in behavior like you. And I'm like, wait, what? They're, your higher power is working through me? And I've had about 10 people make amends to me in recovery. And they came up and told me that they harmed me. And then they told me how they were going to make it up. Only one did not do that. And it, all the other nine, I thought they didn't owe me amends. It wasn't even on my radar. But now I feel like they owe me amends for the way they made amends. And for me, what it is, is those places where I think I harmed people, those are all the places where I've engaged in behavior that led me not to feel good about me. So when I make amends to somebody, I just go to them. I ask them, uh, hey, you know, I have something important I'd like to share. And uh, is it, would you be willing to listen? And uh, and when they say yes, I say, is this a good time? And, and then when they say yes or no, then I'll say, well, can we schedule? And then it becomes, I've engaged in behavior that led me not to feel good about me. And I think you might have felt harmed in the process. If you did feel harmed, is there any way I can make up for that? And I put it in their lap. I don't tell them they're harmed. I just tell them, I didn't like the way I behaved. I think you might have felt harmed. And if you did, is there any way I can clean that up? And if they don't define a behavioral change, then for me, I let them know in similar situations in the future, this is how I plan on behaving. So for me, it was about identifying who's the person that I want to be. And for me, that's the transformational part of the steps. When I made months to my mother for trying to control and manipulate her behavior by trying to control her feelings, I did not ever bring up there. The reason I did that is because you were so critical, because you were so stressed, because you were so angry, because you abandoned. It had nothing to do with her. The next day, I went to a meeting, and I went to a meeting, and we had these chairs that were right next to each other. And there was a person that came into the chair. She looked like my mother. She was older, about my mother's age, as older, uh, uh, older than me as my mother would be. And she was full of stress. And she put her arm right next to mine. 
and it was touching. And it was the first time I could feel her stress. And I was like, I am completely calm. That is not my inner. It is not up to me to try to make her unstressed. It's not up to me to cure her anger. Now, it's not the most comfortable emotion, but for me, it just let me know that was the transformational part of the steps for me is I make amends to others to set boundaries on me. And that's who the person that I want to be. So I am so grateful for this program. I'm so grateful for so many of the tools. And uh, I think the last thing I'll close with, I got a minute on my clock, is that uh, when I first got to recovery, somebody told me the key to having a successful recovery program is to do a few basic things every single day. And I asked him what I thought was the logical question. I said, great, what are those? And he said, I don't know, it's your recovery. You figure it out. I got my own to figure out but just keep doing them every single day unless they stop working. And what I found that to be is I eat well, I exercise, I try to get a good night's sleep, I wake up in the morning, I make my bed, I brush my teeth, and then I start doing getting my RPMs going, which is my reading, prayer, and meditation. I do a gratitude list. I do step 10, which is three things I did well and one I want to work on. And what I find when I take that approach is I feel like I'm present, pleasant, and playful throughout the day. And I'm able to hear from my higher power through people. And so I'm I'm really grateful for being here. I got seven seconds. So with that, I'm just going to say thank you so much for having me. I love you guys. I, I just can't do it without, I can't recover alone. So thank you.